Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Emily Owen, who through suffering has discovered contentment. Emily Owen, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely. I've known you for a couple of years now. Yeah. And uh, it's just great to have you tell your story. Now, you are um, 100% deaf. Yep, that's right. And you are lip reading me. I am, yes. So make sure you speak clearly. <laughs> I d- uh, do I speak clearly? You do. You're excellent lip read. <laughs> now, I'd, I'd like to ask you about lip reading. How easy was that to learn? Not very easy, but I, I knew I was going to become deaf. So before I did, I thought I would try and learn how to lip read. And I was told tips, like you know, face the person, don't have the light behind the speaker. And I was also told some people have an affinity to do it, some don't. So I prayed every night that I would be able to lip read when I became deaf. And I still do. I always pray, please help me lip read this person, <laughs> including you. <laughs> and um, often I can lip read, not always, but often. <laughs> Very good, Emily. Okay, so you were not born deaf, no. um, but uh, it became very obvious that you had certain con- health concerns. When did you first discover uh, that you had a neurological problem? Well, it was probably well, from the time I was about 13, 14, I began to have headaches and bad balance walking. Didn't know that it was anything other than just me being strained. <laughs> but then when I was 16, um, I was sent for a scan and they found tumours in my body, particularly on my hearing nerves, which they said needed to come out. And when they did, that's when I was deaf. So I found out when I was 16. And it was diagnosed that you've got a condition called... Yeah, can you say it? Neurofibrosis, what is it? Nearly, nearly. <laughs> Neurofibromatosis type 2. Type. Well done. Not a bad effort. <laughs> uh, and, and what does that condition explain the condition to us? So basically what it means is that I or anyone with it can grow um, benign tumours on nerves anywhere in the body. Um, I've had so many surgeries over the years with tumours on my spine or in my leg or in my head or on my arm. And yeah, and it often does cause deafness and um, facial weakness and various other symptoms, but it affects everyone differently. Now, when when they discovered that you had two tumours in your brain, yeah. um, they removed the first tumour. Mm. I think you went to a hospital in Nottingham. Yeah, that's right. I went to a hospital in Nottingham because that's um, the main sort of head centre <laughs> near where I live. And they removed that one tumour. And unfortunately, things were, went a bit downhill and I ended up um, sort of in intensive care and my parents were asked permission to switch off my life support machine and it, obviously they didn't switch off the machine in the end <laughs> but then I had a lot of rehabilitation to get myself walking, um, talking, eating and then I did manage to get sort of back going again. Following that operation you lost the hearing in one ear. Yeah that's right. And then later on Uh, the doctors basically said to you they have to operate on the other ear 
and remove the tumor. Yeah. Um, and if they, that meant you would lose your hearing. Yes. Or if you didn't have the operation, you'd lose your lose life. life. Yeah, they actually said that in so many words. Your hearing or your life. You've got to lose one of them. And um, it never actually occurred to me to say, well, I'll lose my life then. <laughs> so I, um, I had to have the operation, which you know, took my hearing. Yeah. So from, from the day they told you that you would have to have the operation to when you did have the operation, yeah. how many days? Um, it's hard. It, it wasn't all that long, but I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it would have been months. It wasn't sort of like you're having the operation next week. It was, it was probably three or four months when they said, between when they said you need the surgery and I, when I had the surgery. So during, during that time, you knew that you were going to lose your hearing completely. Yeah. So um, what did you immerse yourself in well, prior I, I, to that? I had a sort of um, a bucket list. And I think it's okay to call it a bucket list because my hearing was going to die. <laughs> so it was a bucket list of things I would want to do. Um, things like going to a concert. I mean, music was huge in my life. So a lot of the things I wanted to do revolved around music. That the night before I had to go to hospital for the surgery, I phoned my family to hear their voices. And yeah, various things that, but it's, it's actually really hard to think, what, what do I want to hear when I'm never going to hear again? What's the last thing I want to be able to hear? It's difficult. But yes, I heard as much music as I could. Uh, you heard the, the Messiah. Yeah, that's right. I heard Tantos Messiah because that was a big thing for my family. We went every Christmas to a performance of the Messiah. And I thought the last night when I'm in hospital before I lose my hearing, there's no point sleeping. So I would just listen to Handel's Messiah all night, which is what I did. And I can still remember it, still remember the music. Yeah. But you also went to the theatre was that the night before your operation? Oh, right, yes, yes, I did. That was another thing on my bucket list, to go to um, the theatre in Stratford and see Shakespeare. Um, but unfortunately, that didn't really work out. But then a um, performance of The Secret Garden, the musical, was showing, and I thought, oh, that'd be great to go to. Theatre, music, ticks all the boxes. But then the performance opened the day I was due to lose my hearing. So I, I thought, well, I can't go. But then the theatre said, they were so kind. They said, well, why don't you come for the final dress rehearsal? And it'll be just like the normal thing, but it was just you in the theatre with my family. And the person who composed the music came and sat with me and talked with me. And yeah, so it was really good. Beautiful. Yeah. Now, obviously, Emily, you, you're, a you're a person of faith. Yes. You love Jesus. Yes. You know Jesus is with you. Yeah. Did you sense him as you were going into that operation? Um, I, I'm trying to think back whether I actually sensed him. I knew he was there because, you know, he, he's always there. And I knew, I knew he'd been there in that night as I waited, you know, as I listened to the music, reminding, reminded of his presence there. And, um, you know, some of the words in Hunter's Messiah reminded me, you know, I know that my Redeemer lives. So yeah. it was a reminder that Jesus was with me. 
I can't honestly say I was fully aware of sensing his presence as I went into theatre. I think I was just terrified. Of course. <laughs> but I did know he was there. He's, yeah. yeah. So, uh, after the operation, how did things change for you? Well, after, after when I woke up deaf, um, well, for one thing, I, I experienced a terror I've never experienced before. When I woke up in silence, complete silence, I was terrified. And I was terrified for a long, long, long time. Even after I was discharged from hospital, went home, I was just scared of everything because I didn't know anything, you know. We, we rely a lot on sound for clues as to what's going on about us, but I had nothing, nothing of that. And yes, yeah, so I was terrified, very scared. <laughs> God had a plan and a purpose for your life. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting from when I was very small, before I knew about any of this, um, I, one of the earliest things I can ever remember knowing from God was that I would speak. And I didn't do anything about it, to be honest. I just had that knowing and I carried it with me. And it turned out that what I would speak was my story that I didn't at that time know that he was going to develop into quite a story. So, um, so yeah, and things have moved on and I do speak and write books and things like that. Things I would never have thought of doing before I was ill. Well, uh, you told your story in your book Still Emily. I did, yes. Absolutely uh, gripping book, which I, I've read. Um, so after the operation, now you're still Emily. That's the idea behind the title, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're different, yes, but you're still Emily. Yeah, that's something I've really learned. When life throws all sorts of things, unexpected things, difficult things, I've really learned that I have to remember that I am still me and that God is still God. And when things are, you know, going, are going pear-shaped, and to be honest, many things in my life go pear-shaped, but God is always there and I am always me. So that is something I really try and hold on to. Uh, during the, your life, during all of these operations, uh, how many operations have you had? How many? Um, I, 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 over 20. Over 20. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you still have tumours growing? Yes, I do. I still have to go for a scan every year to see whether the tumours are behaving themselves and not growing or beginning to grow. Do you sometimes say to God, God, what are you up to? Why don't you stop this? Um... No, no, I don't actually. I, um, I did, I remember one time, um, fairly early on in my diagnosis, that after I was so ill and when I was realising life wasn't going to be what I thought it would be, I did sort of say, why? This is to God, I said, why? And an immediate bounce back came, well, why not? And, well, actually, I, I think I actually said, why me? And why not me? And I thought, that's true, actually. And I try and I think God is really teaching me a lesson there that I can always say, well, but why not me? You know, because we can get, well, I can get very caught up. Well, it's not fair. Why me? But actually, why not me? <laughs> I'm nothing special. <laughs> and, I do, you know, I do, I do think learning and learning to find God in the why. I'm not trying to say never ask why. I ask why a lot. 
but finding God in that and finding that he is the answer to all my whys. But during, uh, post this, since the operations, since you losing your hearing, you've actually found a, a new voice. Yeah, yeah. You mean, you mean with writing? With it's... writing. So, for example, you started writing uh, these. There's... 30 Days with Mary. And this is your new one, isn't it? Yes, that, that, that's, just days... come, that's just come out uh, last week. 30 Days with Ruth. Ruth yes. So you've started. How did this start? Well, that actually, that actually started in hospital. Much of my life involves hospital. And it was uh, one year just before Advent. And I was feeling, not that God wasn't there, but I was feeling kind of distant from him and I wanted to get that close. And I can remember thinking, I just wish there was an Advent book that I could read that would be engaging and challenging and draw me close to God. And I thought, for all my times in the bookshops, I've never actually seen what I've got in mind. And God said to me, I know he said it to me, he said, well, you better write the book you've got in mind then. <laughs> so I was discharged from hospital, still a bit wobbly, needs to recuperate. And I wrote that as I recuperated. And then more came. So yeah, that's how it started. Uh, but you obviously um, have a, a, a voice, as I said. Uh, you've got a gift in articulating things through suffering and pain. Uh, what would you say uh, is the main are the main lessons or truths that you've discovered since losing your hearing? Well, one thing I've discovered is because when you're deaf, <laughs> social situations are quite tricky because you can't you can't hear the conversation, you don't know what's going on, and I've learnt <laughs> to have God as my plus one. You know, at events. God is right there with me as my plus one. <laughs> and I've really learnt to lean on him and draw on him in those times when I feel so unconfident. He's there with me saying, come on, we can do this together. <laughs> I, I have never heard that before, uh, Emily. I God thought... is my plus one. <laughs> me neither, actually. <laughs> but, but actually, yeah. that's what it should be like yeah. all the time. Yes. That's that, what it is like, but that's the first time I've articulated it. So yes, that's what it is like. That yeah. wherever you go, God is your plus one. one. Yeah, yeah. And, and the truth is that his presence lives in us. Yes, yes, um, exactly. Which enables us to yeah. be his children. Yes. And another thing that I think I've learned, not necessarily through losing my hearing, but probably because of losing my hearing and the subsequent struggles, um, I've learned to turn to the Bible much more. I mean, I, I grew up in a Christian home, so Bible's always been central. But now I sort of read it, I don't know, differently. Um, and verses really speak to me that didn't so much before. So, for example, um, Colossians 3, my life is hidden with Christ in God. That is a verse I hold on to all the time. Actually, my life is safe because he's right around me. <laughs> he's my plus one right around me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so questions like how how can we believe in a God of love when there's so much suffering in the world? When you have personally experienced so yeah. much suffering, mm -hmm. how do you answer that question? 
Um, well, I can only answer it personally. I can't tell anybody else to take these things on themselves. But for me, um, how can I not believe in a God of love? I mean, take that away as well as everything else. How on earth will I cope? Sometimes the only thing that I can keep going is knowing that my plus one loves me. And I think people who manage to do tough journeys without faith, I have no idea how they do it. <laughs> Yeah. What what would you say, Emily, to any of our viewers, anyone listening today? Uh, they're, they're battling with ill health, um, very fearful about maybe what's happening, maybe a diagnosis that that's quite scary. Uh, what would you say to them? Well, one thing, <laughs> don't try, don't feel you need to pretend it's not scary. And don't feel you need to not say to God, this is really hard. Because I say that to God, that kind of thing, because it's hard. We don't have to pretend. I mean, I've, I've come across people who um, sometimes feel they need to say, everything's fine because God is alive. And yes, God is alive. And on one sense, everything is fine because he's alive, but it's still tough. So I would say, give yourself space to acknowledge that is difficult. Um, I would say, you know... <laughs> take a day at a time. I know it's a cliche, but actually, if I can get through today, then well done. If I can get through the next hour, then well done. If I can get through the next minute, then well done. I mean, sometimes I've literally broken it down to a minute, get through this minute, get through this minute, and take it slowly. Don't try and encompass the whole situation because it's too big. You need to just maybe give yourself space. Yeah, so persevere. Mm. and trust yes and trust and trust what prompted you uh, to keep a diary um my mother (laughs) yeah i mean that when all this started well after the shock of the diagnosis and the first surgery and the being ill and the recovering from that um i think my mum thought it would be helpful to write down how i was feeling on you know what was happening and she said, she suggested this to me. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> and she said, well, I'll keep one too, which she did. And, and I said, well, okay, I'll do it. And because I committed to do it, I did write it every day. Now that book is not all of it. I didn't keep it for that length of time. But some of that book is the diary I kept at the time of going through what I went through. Uh, yeah. was, it quite, was it quite hard writing the book or did you also find it therapeutic? Um, it was hard. <laughs> I don't think I found it very therapeutic. Because um, basically to write that book or even to read, that, that, read the diary that I don't particularly, it's just gathering dust on myself. But I had to get it out and read it. It means I'm right back in those situations. And, you know, I'm right back smelling the hospital smell and having the mask shoved on my face. So, yes, it was quite hard to be right back there. As we've said before, you've, you're a positive person. Instead of slumping, you've, you've pressed on. Well, hopefully, yeah. But that, I mean, that makes it sound very easy. I'm a positive person. I've, I've learned to try and be positive. I try and find, um, well, I call them rainbows, <laughs> the everyday rainbows. I try and find something good in every day. And I find it helps me even within everything being bad. 
you know, acknowledging that things are bad, but actually not everything's bad. I still have chocolate (laughs) 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 or something like that. It might sound silly and maybe it sounds a bit Pollyanna-ish, but actually it really helps me just to find something good. Are there there, uh, um, memories of days that were dark when you saw a little rainbow? Um... Uh, well, one particular one, actually, that's just come to mind now was a dark day when I could, and this is quite a few years ago, I remember I had eye infections because the condition affects my eyes as well. And I had to have my eyes taped shut so I couldn't hear anything, couldn't see anything. And, well, I said being deaf was terrifying. Being deaf and blind is even more scary. And I remember it was, I think it was on Christmas, and my family were going out to a concert. Obviously, I wasn't. And I just said to them, oh, fine, go. Well, I assume I said it to them. I didn't know they were in the room. I couldn't see them. But I said, oh, off you go, bye. And they went. Then about maybe five minutes later, I felt someone sit down next to me. I didn't think it was a burglar. <laughs> I did realise they hadn't actually left the house. And it was my mum. And she felt onto my hand, because obviously I couldn't hear or lip read. And she felt, I'm staying. And I said, oh, no, no, why would you stay? You can't do anything. You Go and enjoy the concert. Off you go. And she said, no, I'm staying. And I realised that when I'd said she couldn't do anything to help, actually she could, literally by staying. That's all she did. She didn't fix anything. She just stayed. So that was a real rainbow in a dark time. Yeah, being being present. Being present. Yeah. yeah. So rather than you feeling uh, totally isolated, alone. Um, yeah. It was it just, was a tangible expression. Yes. Uh, yeah. Of love yes. and support for yeah. you. Very often, people doing nice things are are rainbows in my life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the future, Emily. How, how, what are your expectations for the future? Um, well, I've learned not to have expectations because who knows? I mean, probably um, the tumours will decide to misbehave and I'll need more surgeries. And so ironically, because I'm a real planner, I like to know the plan, but life is having to teach me that I can't always know the plan. You know, it will just happen. Life will just happen. But um, you've mentioned I write books. Perhaps yes. I write more books. Um, more speaking. I like speaking um, at different events. Um, so yes, hopefully, um, you know, if God, if God lets me, more writing and speaking would be great. So tell uh, tell us more about your speaking. Where what kind of places do you go to? Um, well, anything with conferences or churches or anywhere that asks me really, or sometimes at schools, education and places, things like that. And um, because I've got quite a broad story, I can it can apply in many many situations. So if I speak at a medical conference, obviously I talk quite a lot about the medical side of things. If I'm taking, for example, a lesson in a school, um, I might talk about the ethics, for example, of turning off my life support machine or not. Or um, if I'm speaking in a church, I might give my testimony or, or speak on a Bible passage, whatever, th- whatever they want, really. <laughs> what, would you say, what would you say to the church, church leaders, uh, regarding those 
who have disabilities? Um, well, see, that's really, really broad because those who have disabilities, it's everyone will have a different need, different experience. Um, I would say um, make time for them, actually, for, well, for us. I don't, don't mean that for us. Sure. Make time and um, you know, take time to find out what, they, what we actually need rather than what people think we need. You know, because often there are big, big assumptions are made. But also, I would say to church leaders, be, not, be kind to yourself about it. Because I know from somebody who wasn't disabled, who is now disabled, if I look back, I wouldn't have known what to do if I met someone like me. I, and I don't expect church leaders to know, but I would say be open to learn, be open to learning. And um, I would also say I'm praying for you because <laughs> it's a really hard, hard job and it's impossible to get it exactly right. But, sure. Yeah. And, and there are many people who are struggling mm. with all sorts of ailments and disabilities. Yes. And, um, yeah. and we need to be more uh, compassionate and gracious, uh, patient and accommodating. Well, we, all, we, all, we all need to do that. But one thing actually saying about church is how church has gone online, hasn't it? during the last year. And that is great for disabled people. So for example, for myself, I'm able to access church with subtitles, which is amazing for me. And other disabled people who literally cannot leave their homes are suddenly now able to attend church because it's online. But there's a worry from what I can see um, on Twitter and things. There's a bit of a worry that as we go back to normal, churches might forget their online congregation. <laughs> so I would say just be aware of not cutting all ties and going back to what it was. Uh, a verse has come to mind, Emily, um, that describes you. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. And um, I think that's a great description I of think you. Great, that, but yeah, I think the key, the key word for me in that verse is learned. It didn't just happen. He didn't just say, oh yeah, hey, I'm happy, I'm content, everything's great. He actually learned to find contentment. And on the basis of that, I decided I will learn that I will find contentment. And I still do try. <laughs> well, I, I think you have learned to be content and uh, you, you're an inspiration, Emily, uh, to me and my wife, Killy, and I know to many other people. And uh, we pray God's grace for you uh, and your family uh, in this you. next season of your lives. And we really pray that God will be merciful to you and, uh, and bring, put his healing balm upon you. Thank you. So that you don't have any more tumours. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing your story oh, with it's us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wasn't that amazing? Wasn't that inspiring? Well, truly heartwarming. If you are in any way uh, battling with anything, um, lean on the Lord. Uh, take some encouragement from Emily's story and Emily's journey and um, keep persevering. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. 
You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.